Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Datascape Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley, and today we're going to talk to John Schultz about the Cassandra database system. We're going to explore what it is, how it compares to a conventional relational database management system, some use cases, and what to avoid, as well as a few helpful tips on how to get started and learn the system. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Welcome. To help our audience get to know you a little bit better, could you give us a quick overview of your career? Sure. I've been doing databases for a long time. I got started in the 1970s working with relational and hier- not sorry, relational hierarchical and network databases, both of which are pretty much out of out of favor these days. Back in the 1980s, I got involved with the relational database world, and moving into the 2000s, I got involved in open source. And when NoSQL came out, I started getting involved with that. I specifically, I got started and started getting involved with Cassandra in 2010, back when it was version 0.7. I got a lot of experience with it working at AOL, where we had really large databases and very much distributed, which, of course, is what Cassandra is known for. Excellent. So that's quite a quite an extensive career. So why don't we start at the very beginning? I'm going to make the assumption that many of our listeners are pretty familiar with relational database management or RDBMS systems. So maybe they don't necessarily understand writing complex queries, but they understand what they do, probably know some names, things like that. So given that we know that Cassandra is quite a bit different, could you give us an idea of what is Cassandra? Could you explain it? Sure. Cassandra is is a distributed database, which means that it's not stored on any one particular host. It is actually a cluster of hosts, and it is not relational in any way, shape, or form. It is, in fact, defined as an eventually consistent database, which is a write-anywhere database. You can write to any node, and the data will get stored in the appropriate place. It's very efficient for doing high-volume writes and things like that. It's not so good for doing complex queries. In fact, it doesn't do complex queries. It's more of a operational data store where you're looking for storing a lot of data quickly and retrieving bits and pieces of it where you know exactly what you're looking for. Okay. So based on what I heard, this is quite a bit different from, say, SQL Server or Oracle, where we tend to have one system or one database or at least one version of the database. We are always consistent. We never lose data. And we, we certainly do have some cluster and availability options, but they're definitely not, you know, they're speaking to one another all the time. And then in terms of relational databases or the rela- relational word, that means we can use a number of tables and we try not to duplicate data and we use unique identifiers on each table and then relate the data with that unique identifier. John, you mentioned, let, let's delve into the architecture a little bit. You, you mentioned that it's a distributed database and that it's a cluster and then we can write to any node in the cluster. When we write to a node, are we specifying the node we want to talk to or do we specify a larger group and it, and it figures out where we're writing to? Okay, uh, pretty much all of the Cassandra language drivers, you tell it, a node, it doesn't matter which one, you give it a node, it connects to the cluster, figures out what nodes are in the cluster, and basically round robins across the nodes when it's talking to them. So you don't have to figure out how many nodes you have, you just have to know at least one. Okay. And are they, is there, like, is it a master with a bunch of slaves, or is everybody equal in the quorum? How, How does that work? It is, it is everybody is equal. There is no, no master-slave concept here. Every node, it stands alone and is essentially its own, own master and communicates with the other nodes. In fact, when you write to a particular node, a request, that, that node becomes what is referred to as a coordinator. It knows where data is stored around the ring. It goes out to whatever nodes it knows has the data to retrieve it and or sends the data out to those nodes. Is all the nodes are kind of kept in, in, in sync by something called gossip. Okay. And does each node have, is the intent that each node has, and I'm keeping in the mind the word eventually consistent, a full copy of, of the data or, you know, 90% or better? No. 
it depends on, on, on what's something called replication factor. If I have, say, for example, three nodes and I say my replication factor is three, then I will make sure that every node has a full copy of the data. On the other hand, if I have, say, six nodes and I still keep the replication factor of three, which is a really common use case, then each node will have only half of the data. But there will be each, each piece of data will be stored on three of those six nodes. Right. So kind of like HDFS in, or Hadoop where you can, you're basically specifying the number of copies that you would like to have. Yes. Very different architecture, but similar concept. Okay. And in terms of best practices, how many copies of the data do you tend to recommend to your clients? It really depends on the use case, but most of the time for each data center, we recommend three copies. Cassandra is multi-data center, so if, say, for example, you wanted to have a data center in New York and another data center in China, you would probably say, I want three copies in New York and three copies in China. Got it. And so it is aware, the nodes are aware that, hey, I'm part of this data center and I'm part of that data center? Yes, they are. Okay. And I realize that there's a big it depends coming to my answer, but I'm really curious how many nodes, what's a common number of nodes in deployment? Is it a, in the thousands, is it the hundreds, the tens? It, I don't know that there is a specific, you know, a, a good answer to that, but you can run anywhere from three nodes. I, I, you don't really see production clusters with less than three nodes. Mm-hmm. You can run from three nodes up to around a thousand. There are some technical issues with running clusters greater than a thousand nodes. The next release of Cassandra, they're hopefully going to fix that. Okay. Now, when when you talk about release, this is a there are open source and closed source options for this. Is that correct? Yes. The open source is the Apache Cassandra project. Uh, Datastax is the company that offers a closed source version with proprietary version. It's based on the open source code, but it adds security features and a number of ease of use features on top of the basic product. Okay. So are there any other closed source players or is it just Datastax? At this point in time, there is just Datastax. Okay. The other thing I'm kind of curious about in the notes when I've read about these types of technologies is they talk about using commodity hardware, which as a closed source kind of typical traditional DBA, you know, kind of makes the hair go up on the back of my neck. Can you give me an idea of the, what, what's a node? Like how, how, when you're sizing a node, what's a typical size? Cassandra, Cassandra is based on Java and Java uses a heap construct which requires garbage collection. And garbage collection, and I don't want to go into all the details here, but garbage collection kind of limits the amount of, of heap space you can consume. So you really can't take advantage of machines with you know, gobs and gobs of memory, not very effectively anyways. So Cassandra nodes tend to be on the small side. Mm-hmm. A typical configuration might be 16 processors with, say, 64 or 100 gigabytes of memory. Mm-hmm. And maybe two or three terabytes of SSD, and I want to stress that SSD part. You do not want to use rotational storage for Cassandra. Okay. It doesn't work well. <laughs> okay. So SSDs. All right. Fair enough. So it's not that, you know, it's funny because I wouldn't really call that all that commodity. I, mean, I think it is going there, but that sounds like a decent sized machine to me. The other thing that you mentioned that I don't want to leave out is the term eventually consistent. Some of these concepts, I mean, as a traditional DBA, just blow my mind. What, how eventual is eventually consistent? That's, it's up to the developer how eventual that's going to be. There is a factor that's used whenever you do a, a request to do a write or an update, and that's basically your consistency factor defines how many nodes have to return, I've completed this operation before the operation is considered to be complete. By default, most of the time people use what's called quorum, which means one more than half. So in the case of our replication factor of three, that means two out of the three nodes have to have been updated or written to before a response comes back. Which means if you say, for example, use consistency factor one, when I go and and read that data, I have two-thirds chance of getting back the data that was originally just written and one-third chance of getting data that hasn't actually been updated yet. Got it. Which is what we call it eventually consistent. It will get updated. It just isn't necessarily updated yet. 
So, you know, for the vast majority of operations, eventually consistent doesn't mean that you get back different results. Eventually consistent means that you might get different results. It's one of those things programmers struggle with. They're like, you know, in all my testing, it worked just fine. And then I put it in production and occasionally I get these weird results. Well, that's the eventually consistency part. Right. Is there, are there metrics available to the administrator to see the consistency and synchronization levels across the cluster? Sort of. You can see streaming going on. You can see when, when, when nodes are making sure that they're up to date. There'll be streaming going on. And uh, if you're using the uh, Ops Center command and control client, which is only available via data stacks, you can actually see the nodes are, when they're updating each other, kind of background activities. The coordinated updates are pretty much invisible. Okay. And it sounds to me like, well, we'll talk a lot more about use cases a little bit later on in the interview, but it sounds like if, to me, if you care, this is not the product for you or you're, what you're trying to use it for. Well, it depends on your definition of care. Right. If you care about whether or not the update you just wrote is going to be visible right now, then the answer is yes. You probably don't want to use this product. If, on the other hand, you're doing writes and you know that you're going to want to be able to collect that data in a few minutes, you're probably pretty safe. Okay. So one of the things that I've read about technology such as this is that there's um, a higher tolerance or the higher possibility of data loss. I also understand that Cassandra doesn't do ACID. So is that true? Is, is there a chance? What are the pro- what's the probability of data loss in, in the system? If you have a Cassandra cluster with a high enough replication factor, the probability of data loss is really, really small. Okay. There's a probability of data loss with any database, including a ACID database. You just simply have to calculate it out. Okay. Are there expensive operations in Cassandra, and what are they? Sure. Probably the most expensive operations in Cassandra are the ones that attempt to do things like a relational database. There are a few operations that try to operate in an atomic fashion, for example, incrementing a counter. It goes against the grain of everything Cassandra was basically designed to do, but to satisfy people who want to be able to do that sort of thing, the Cassandra community implemented it. What it requires the nodes to do is all coordinate, which means that you have all kinds of network hops going on when you're coordinating this activity, which makes it very expensive. Got it. It's a gen- as a general good rule for designing for Cassandra database is you don't do counters. Okay. So do them at the app layer, or try to do them at the app layer. Yes. Okay. That's that's good. And a great segue, actually. I do want to talk a little bit about modeling. I realize that each of the categories and kind of sections that I that we'll be discussing could easily be a, you know, day-long course. So I, I, don't, I, I want to cover a lot. Uh, I think there's a lot of different pieces of, it, of understanding any database and, and we'll, we'll scratch the surface on each of those and then you know, hopefully arm people with enough information to ask intelligent questions and either give us feedback that they want to go deeper into something or be able to self-serve some answers. So with what you just said, let's move into talking a little bit about data modeling in Cassandra. Data modeling in the conventional database world is a very old thing. It's not done as much as well or as much as it, I think it should be, but there's a, certainly an art and a science to it. What would you say the differences in, what are the key differences or key takeaways that one should know about when, when they're modeling a, a database in Cassandra or for Cassandra? Okay, first of all, since it's not relational, if you want to get good performance, you're almost certainly going to end up duplicating data. So you're going to end up with a database which is highly unnormalized. In Cassandra, it is, I mean, this is true in in relational databases as well, but it's much more true in Cassandra. It is critically important to design your tables and your keys to support your queries and, and to do it in a very efficient way. Because there's no joins, there's no relational between tables, you have to define each table to have everything that you're going to need for a query, or you need to run multiple queries. You, as I said before, you don't want to have counters. You don't want to depend on locks. There is no concept of a lock in Cassandra. So lock rows and things like that, lock tables, got help you. They're bad for relational databases too, but the concept of a lock row, which is very common in the relational world, does not apply to Cassandra. 
everything needs to be done without th thinking without locks. You have to kind of completely rethink the way you're going to accomplish things whenever you think, well, I need to be able to create some sort of a resource lock on this thing. Well, the answer is no, not with Cassandra. Okay. And so uh, the query planning, you know, before writing, that's, uh, <laughs> I don't see that happen very often if you're coming from the relational database world. Yeah, yeah but you should. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> agreed. <laughs> the, the same is true for Cassandra, only more so. If you haven't done some careful planning how you're going to be querying this database in, in Cassandra, the performance is going to be absolutely horrible. Okay. Now, I've often heard of Cassandra's modeling as being referred to as like a key value pair. Does that mean that we can only have two columns per table? No, it absolutely does not. Cassandra has a fairly rich concept of keys and rows, and you can have many columns in a row. You can have complex columns. You can have user-defined data types. What you can't have is the concept of foreign keys, the concept of... Secondary indexes, at least the way people tend to think of them, a secondary index does exist in Cassandra, but it's not something you can use as an alternate entry point into the table. There can only be one enter point into the table, and that's the primary key. Okay. Hmm. So the it sounds like there's a lot of redundant storage of information, you know, very much the opposite of the way things were in the you know 70s and 80s when storage was very expensive. In practice, that is not true, okay? And, and the reason I say that is if you're finding yourself putting in a lot of redundant data and creating tables with lots of redundant data in them, you probably shouldn't be using Cassandra. Okay. It's one of the indicators that you've made the wrong choice. And given the distributed architecture, is there the concept of deleting data and updating data? Sure. Is it given... But it works very differently. <laughs> Can you take us through, let's start with um, deleting. Can you take us through what a delete operation would look like? Okay. Let me actually take back, take a step back here and talk about the way Cassandra stores data. Cassandra's data is stored in what's referred to as a log-structured merge tree. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but log-structured merge tree is a write-only thing. You can only write it, you can't update it. Well, you can read it too, but you can't update it. Okay. So when you do an update, what you're doing is you're writing to a new copy of the log-structured merge tree with the update or with the delete if you're writing a delete. So an update or a delete is actually a, a new copy of the row or, or that portion of the row that's being updated with an indicator that either this is an update or I'm deleting this. This means that reads are actually far more expensive than writes. In fact, they're an order of magnitudes more expensive. Now, before you get thinking, oh my God, this is horrible, <laughs> reads are about Read performance in Cassandra is generally about equal to what most other databases provide with read performance. What Cassandra has done is make write performance incredibly fast. Most relational databases, writes are expensive. In Cassandra, they are dirt cheap. Okay. Jumping over to the the number of columns that we can have in the table design. So it sounds like we always, pretty much always have to, you can't not have a primary key. Is that right? That's correct. That is okay. correct. You cannot not have a primary key. Okay. You have to have a primary key. And so, um, which <laughs> I wish I wish that was a rule in every database, but anyway. Me too. <laughs> so in the number of columns, I've seen that Cassandra can store very, very large numbers of columns. What's the largest and widest uh, table that you've you've seen in your travels? The largest number of columns I have seen was in the millions. I'm not sure how many. In practice... Cassandra, I mean, when they designed and built the, the, the code or the application, there were some general limits set in their minds as to how big they should expect things to be. And in practice, you probably don't want more than a million columns and or about 100 megabytes in a particular row. But other than that, and, and you can have it a lot more. There's, it will work. It will work just fine with gigabytes and or, or theoretically billions of, of columns. It just won't perform very well. Okay. And then in terms of the uh, data types, how do the data type options compare to, say, SQL Server or Oracle? It's not nearly as rich as either of those. I mean, the, the things that happen over time, when, when I first started working with Cassandra, you had numbers, uh, strings, text columns, and uh, one kind of timestamp. 
now they've got a number of user-defined ones, they've got a number of different number type columns, number of different timestamp columns, UUID columns, sets, lists, and maps. So they've come a long way and, and I suspect they will go further. It's one of those things that just over time it grows. Okay. In some databases, they make available the option to create custom data types, but they're considered fairly expensive. And it's one of those features that, yes, you can do it, but you shouldn't. Is, is that the case with Cassandra? That's a good question. It depends on what custom data type you're choosing to use and how you're choosing to use it. You really need to understand how they're stored to understand whether you're using it right or not. So it's really kind of a depends question. Okay. As is everything database. Um, so then, and, and actually the other thing that I missed uh, when we were talking about the data types, I didn't hear you say binary. Can you store binary data types in Cassandra? You mean blobs? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, blobs have been there since the beginning. Okay. Okay, so is is it sounds like Cassandra is maturing quite a bit if if you call relation RDBMSs mature in the evolution of the product is it are they trying to replicate what RDBMSs do or are they really just kind of doing their own thing and they're these the overlaps are coincidental? It depends on who you talk to. If you're talking to the people from Datastax, they're trying to turn Cassandra into something that will do pretty much everything a relational database will. I'll bet in many cases very poorly. If you talk to people in the open source community, they don't want to make Cassandra be another relational database. They want it to be the specialty thing that it is. Right. So there's a bit of a, a divide there. You can kind of understand from Datastack's point of view, they want to bring in more and more users and more and more different kinds of use cases. But as often happens when you do that sort of thing, you start making the database technology more, I won't say clumsy, but bigger, fatter, and not necessarily nearly as good at, at what it re used to do, even though it maybe do some do more things. So. Right. Yeah, I can really get behind that. I can. I mean, I, I've yet to see. I mean, user communities are are often divided, and I think that's actually how you get a better productive product. But it's not with everybody. You know, it's not through consensus. So I can certainly understand why you know data stacks would want to reach uh, expand their market share. But I can also see how when you make it tr try to make it do things that it was never intended to, and then those users or, or customers use it for the thing, and then it doesn't perform up to snuff. It, it you know it, it degrades the quality of the brand or gives a sentiment anyway that you know that I think can ultimately really hurt it. So I, I can definitely I see both sides. So given that the given the differences in the the tables and the modeling, actually before we move on, there's I think one really point that, a, a large point that a significant point that we should cover, which is so there are no relationships. Everybody must have a every table must have a primary key. Are there any other kind of big things you need to forget when you move from working on a relational database to designing something for Cassandra? Are there any other tips you can offer? Yeah, I'll, I'll go through my list here. No joins, which we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. No aggregates. There are a few, but the kinds of aggregates that you often see in in an Oracle and MSSQL and even MySQL, uh, they just don't exist. You can do sums, and in the later versions of Cassandra, you can do averages, but that's about it. Okay. You can't do all the other fancy aggregates. No acid. This is critically important. There is no rollback transaction. There is no guarantee that if I do start a transaction, do some things, and then commit, that I'm guaranteed that that will have happened. That, I think, often people start confusing with the notion that, that you can lose data in Cassandra. That's not true, but you cannot be guaranteed on any particular operation as to whether or not it succeeded unless you use consistency all on all of your operations, which is not practical. Right. No sequences, no auto increments. The, the capability just really isn't there. There is a counter feature, but it's really, I won't say poorly implemented. It's kind of actually a cool implementation, but it's expensive and it isn't even guaranteed. It does a pretty good job and it's pretty much always going to auto increment pretty well, but if you ever do a decrement, you may get surprised. It may not, may not work the way you thought. <laughs> 
it has limited atomicity. There is a, a what they refer to as a lightweight transaction, which you, I wish they hadn't because it's got nothing to do with transactions at all. It's a limited atomic capability where you can say, if this value is true in the database, then do this. Usually this is associated with an update. So I can say if certain value is, is in the database, then update it. And, but again, it's, it requires that all nodes co that know about this data have to coordinate, so it's expensive. Right. And involves a read, well, several reads. It does, yes. Cassandra works best, and, and that's a good point. And Cassandra works best when you don't have to read any data when you're doing writes, deletes, or updates. You're just throwing the new data at it. So let's talk about maintenance for the databases and tables. In my conventional relational database management system, I'm running you know, periodic re-indexes, periodic statistic updates for anything that gets out of date. I'm backing it up, hopefully not restoring it, but you know, probably am restoring it somewhere. And, that, and, and that's your kind of typical foundational maintenance to keep everything happy. What, what does maintenance look like in a Cassandra database? Okay, in Cassandra, you do want to do backups, just like you do in any other database. Although, in an a online real-time database, which has the potential to be good-sized in the, the hundreds of terabytes and even petabyte range, restoring a backup is not very practical. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to accomplish. But it's still a good idea to do backups, just to be on the safe side. And you can use the backups for other things other than doing a full restore. You can use them to do partial restores, things like that. There isn't any need to do in like things like index optimizations, you know, optimizing the database tables. Those are actually done automatically. The whole idea behind log structure merge trees is that you every so often you emit data to disk, and when you need to read things, you go to a cluster of index trees, find the data that you're looking for, aggregate it together from the various places that you're going to find it, and return it. And what you do to keep from that having too many of those is what's called compactions. So every so often, Cassandra will fire off compactions to reduce the number of merge trees that are out there. So that's handled for you pretty much automatically, although you need to watch it and make sure it does perform and behave because your, your query response time is going to go into the pits if for some reason your compactions aren't happening. In addition to that, the, the whole uh, eventual consistency thing means that you need to make sure that you eventually do get updates to where they belong, and there are a number of, of maintenance activities to make sure those happen, uh, including something called repairs. You need to make sure those happen on a regular basis. What a repair does is, is basically verify that node A and node B actually have the same data. Okay. And is that something that the administrator schedules, or is that also built in? No, that is actually something the administrator schedules. Okay. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I guess I'm trying to uh, wrap my head around what a restore, I want to be careful about going down a rabbit hole here, but in the understanding what you've told us about eventually consistent, lots of copies of the data, I can see how restoring a database would be just an utter mess because the system's probably still running, you're restoring it onto one node, and then now the node has to say, no, really, I'm I'm the latest copy of this stuff, but oh yeah, I need, I need copies of that stuff, and then, you know, trying to like sort that out has got to be a nightmare. Uh, actually, it's done pretty much automatically. When you do, uh, if you say, for example, you, you, you have a, a node that dies, uh, completely blown away, it's not going to come back. You take your backup from that node, your most recent one, and you load it up onto a new node, start it up saying, this node is actually taking over for that node. This is the new guy. He's got a new IP address, but he's taking over for the old one. And he then basically reaches out to all the other nodes that have data that the replicates for his data. And he says, hey, you know, here's what I've got. Here's my latest version of all this data. You tell me what my updates are. And it streams the data to it. And until he's up to date, he is not treated as an authoritative source. I see. Hmm. So it actually is a pretty close to automatic. Okay. Yeah, when I was thinking of Nightmare, I wasn't actually thinking of me, the administrator, or you, or anyone, the administrator. I was just thinking of from a systematic and, and programming standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. The code is, com is incredibly complex. Yeah, I can, I can see how that would be. Okay, so indexing, re-indexes, and compactions, and then around comparing and ensuring data consistency. And then... I'm guessing here, but during any of these write-heavy operations, is performance affected on the nodes? It can be. 
there are actually a bunch of tunables in Cassandra to try and limit the impact of these operations. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're doing repairs, there's a throttle that says how many gigabytes per second or megabytes per second of data traffic can be sent to and from any particular pair of nodes that relate to repair traffic so that you won't basically overwhelm your production traffic. Okay. Of course, that does mean the repair traffic gets slowed down. Right. And runs a lot longer. Now, are the the default values that it gets configured with, are they fairly decent? Or is that one of those best practices, first things you look at type of things? The answer is no. (laughs) No to which one? (laughs) (laughs) No, they're not decent. They nearly always need to be adjusted. And it's one of the things that a lot of Cassandra users don't realize. Got it. And actually, are there any other big tunables that stand out to you? I realize this is another thing that you could probably go on and on about, but are there the top few, what what are the top few tunables that that a, a new administrator should look at and set? You want to take a look at all the throttles. You want to take a look at how many write threads you can have. You want to take a look at how many read threads you can have. Basically, the way Cassandra works is it uses thread pools for everything. So you basically say, you know, I want a thread pool with this many threads to do this, this many threads to do that. So that's what that's about. You want to look at all the throttles, and there's a bunch of them. Off the top of my head, I guess there's probably about 20 of them, defining various background operations. And you want to tune them to make sure that the background operation gets done. For example, compactions. Compaction is also another one that you have a throttle for. If you let compactions run anytime they want and as fast as they want, you may be impacting production. On the other hand, if you don't allow enough resources to go to compactions, you're going to fall behind and you're going to end up with way too many copies of your tables. Okay. And so to find the right values for the various throttles, I'm assuming we pretty much have to run some either some sort of load testing or get an idea based on actual use, or are, are there some calculations and some good resources for calculations? Some of it you can calculate. Actually, a lot of it you can calculate. If you know what your input, you know, your, your rate of, of, of flow into the system is of updates and writes, then you should have a pretty good idea of how fast your SS tables are growing. That's what they're called on disk, SS table. Mm-hmm. Then with that knowledge in hand, you should be able to get a feeling for how much time it's going to, or how many, how many bytes per second you're going to have to go through when you're doing compactions. So it's actually pretty much all calculatable. The same is true for repairs. You could get a pretty good idea of, you know, how big are my nodes? How long is it going to take to do a repair? How many, you know, how many bytes per second do I want to allow flowing to, d- to do that? And it's pretty much all calculatable. Okay. Oh, that's good. Are there any, I mean, obviously people can do a Google or a Bing search, but are there any kind of go-to reference guides that, that you would, that, that come to mind? Other than the Datastax documentation, which is not great, what I would strongly recommend people doing is signing up to the uh, Cassandra users mailing list, which also includes an archive you'll find that the Cassandra community is very helpful. Pretty much any time you send out an email asking a question, you will get responses within minutes. Okay. Well, that's that's good to know. Sometimes the communities can be a little hostile and expect everybody to you know, know all the silly stuff. I, I haven't seen that so far. Uh, like you occasionally see somebody from the community say something kind of nasty, but it's rare. Most of the time they're like, yeah, we're glad to help. Okay. Well, that's good. A good, uh, good community can really help. Let's shift gears again to talking about interacting with the database. So what, you know, if you, if you read anything about Cassandra, it says NoSQL or it calls it a NoSQL database. What is NoSQL? <laughs> NoSQL basically means that you don't use SQL to access the database or you don't, it may not be only the only way to access the database. In fact, if you want to, you can actually use SQL to access Cassandra through an SQL connector. There's lots of them available. I don't recommend it. It's not going to give you good performance. Instead, Cassandra has a native query language called CQL. Okay. And if you look at it written down and try and pronounce it, you come up with something that sounds an awful lot like SQL. <laughs> right. CQL. Yeah. Or in SQL, whatever. Anyways, it's basically very much like SQL, except it's very primitive. It doesn't have joins. You're very limited in what you put in your where clause, stuff like that. 
Okay. So no like formatting a date to exactly the way I want it on the fly as I'm querying it, that sort of thing? No, 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 no. And no, you know, no, select star there's from... There's no fancy formatting. <laughs> None. No, no select star from, you know, uh, yeah, employee, table, empl employee table, you know, group by, you know, with a group buys and things. Other than oh, no, 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 no. There's a select star from employee table. Yeah. But there's no select star with group by. There's no group by. Yeah, a good, um, good call on my syntactical error. I, I, it should have been select a couple column names with the group by. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, there's no group by. You can do limited ordering, very limited. Again, with Cassandra, the idea is that you're going to access the data in the order it was written, and you're going to access it mostly by primary key. Okay. I can do a select star from table without using a where clause at all. You know, I can just say select star from table. Mm -hmm. Performance is going to be awful because it's going to go to all the nodes and select all the data and try to bring it all back. <laughs> okay. On that note, I, and something else that just kind of came to mind, is there the option to encrypt the data? That's a good question. There are a number of third-party tools available for encrypting on uh, when it's on disk. There's... Of course, there's, Cassandra does support encryption of data in transit between nodes and between client and node. And in later versions of the later versions of the, of the current version of Cassandra, 3.10, in fact, which last time I looked, I think is out now, have limited encryption of some parts of the data that's stored on disk. If you get the commercial edition from Datastax, absolutely everything can be encrypted. Okay. And then in terms of interacting with the data, is there, am I, paint the picture for me. Am I using like, you know, a command line in my Unix shell or SSH or something, or am I using a fancy GUI or, you know, how am I interacting? The answer to that question is yes. Okay. To everything. <laughs> you, you, there is a fancy, well, I'm not sure I would call it fancy, but there is a GUI, the Cassandra Workbench, that will let you do the GUI stuff. There's a, a command line shell called CQLSH. And then, of course, obviously, if you are writing from an application, there's database drivers that you can use to access the database. Okay. When you're connecting to Cassandra, are you using JDBC? And if not, what are you using to connect to it? You, you do not use JDBC when you connect to Cassandra. The native mechanism is using Cassandra driver directly, which looks a little like JDBC, but it is not. Okay. And then I realize I'm jumping all over here, but what about security? What is the security matrix like for accessing the data? In, in SQL Server Oracle, I can, you know, I have all kinds of configurables, many different built-in roles, and then I have the option of individual grants to all kinds of different functions or specific data points or, or objects. Can you tell us about the security options in Cassandra? Okay, with Cassandra Community Edition, the uh, open source edition, they implemented roles for the first time in version 3, which is the current release. And they're kind of moving in the direction of providing more, more of the kinds of granularity in terms of, you know, saying this table and this column can be controlled this and accessed only by this set of users. But there's still a long ways to go for them that, to get there. They do provide a fully pluggable authentication and access module so you can write anything you want to do your own thing but it's not built into Cassandra. Datastax on the other hand provides a very rich roles-based authentication and security module. Okay do you see what what is the split when you see implemented production systems what's the split between community and Datastax? Total guess. 80-20. In favor of community? Yeah. Okay. Do you find that people, is there a natural transition of they start on community and as it becomes a more critical or a more used or a type system, they move to data stacks or, or no? Actually, I see mostly the reverse. Data stacks is a very nice beginner's plan for somebody who's just trying to get started with Cassandra. They basically provide you access to it, all the features and capabilities, hoping that they can suck you in later. So a lot of people will start out using the Datastax 
Enterprise Edition and using all those features. And then when the time comes they want to start thinking about putting into production, they sit down and negotiate with Datastax, find out how much it's going to cost. And then they have a question, do I really want to continue with this or do I want to pick up the Community Edition and dump anything I was doing that was Datastax specific? Got it. Okay. Hmm. I would have thought I would go the other the other way. Okay, and that's a nice transition into the part I've been most looking forward to, and the subject which is use cases. So it's you know it's very different from your conventional database. What are the what are some of the ideal use cases that you've seen for for Cassandra? Well, as we've already talked about, this is an eventually consistent database and. As a result, you don't want, and it's, it doesn't have ACID, it doesn't have joins, there's a lot of the things that traditional relational databases, it, it just doesn't have. What it does have is incredibly incredible capability to accept large amounts of traffic, uh, especially writes. So what it tends to be good for is high volume input with relatively immediate, moderate or low read rates and reads that are not necessarily really sophisticated. Some examples that I've seen a lot of, Cassandra is really popular in the time series database world. We've got data coming in, whether it's weather data or autometrics data from cars. This stuff comes streaming in in, in, in enormous amounts of bytes per second, and Cassandra can swallow it nicely. And then periodically, people are going to ask questions like, you know, what was the temperature yesterday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in, in Cincinnati? Or it's going to be questions like, give me uh, all the miles driven by a particular car during the last two weeks. Those are kind of questions that, that Cassandra can handle, answer very easily. So you see those kinds of applications. Another place where I see very common, actually a fair number of, of the uh, telephone companies are doing this, and actually some of the banks are too. They stream all their billing records to Cassandra. This is not their, uh, this is not their you know, uh, database of record. This is a, a copy of the data which is going to be used for customer service. So they recognize that people aren't going to look at their uh, customer service records all the time, but occasionally they want to see, you know, when did that check clear? Or uh, I just, you know, got a phone bill and that's way big, you know, how did it end up being so big? So people are going to want to look at their billing records, and that's a really good fit for Cassandra. Again, you're, you know, you're writing huge amounts of data because you're writing everybody's data records, but only a small number or a medium number of people are actually going to be interested in the data. And the data they're interested in is very specific. It's their records. Okay. Do they okay, – okay. So and the other thing that kind of comes to mind in a typical use case in architecture, is it normal to use, it, use Cassandra for ingestion and then connect it to something else and put either you know, maybe portions of the data to that place for further analysis? Yes, that's actually a very common approach. Cassandra, because of its ability to handle a huge input volume, is very often used as the first stage in a multi-stage data processing uh, sequence. You know, For example, you're going to get in the, the time series data we were talking about. Mm -hmm. The data comes in, it's stored in, say, for example, we're talking about weather data. It's stored in location and time space uh, position so that, you know, at this, from this location, we had these temperatures yesterday, these temperatures today, that kind of thing. But you want to aggregate those. You want to say, okay, fine, yesterday's temperature, average temperature was such and such, or our maximum and minimum were such and such. You don't want to necessarily have to process all the data every time to get that. So you're going to have a background process going through that data, either rewriting it to go back to Cassandra, in another set of tables with the aggregates or moving it off to a, another completely different database. Okay. So you see that sometimes. Another one I see, uh, I've seen a lot of, or Cassandra's used heavily, is working with a, an open source product called Storm, which is heavily used in the advertising industry, mm -hmm. where they want to keep real time, they want to keep real time dashboards of uh, ads being displayed, things like that. Cassandra will be used for the raw data, and then periodically dashboards will be calculated from that raw data, then written back to Cassandra, and then when customers want to see the dashboard, they're going to see the data, the, the, the dashboard that was just re most recently written into Cassandra. Okay. Are there any kind of natural, other than Storm, are there any natural databases that it, that it works really well with where people are using that storage, or is it just whatever they prefer? Well, Storm isn't really a database. It's a processing infrastructure for managing massive volumes of data. 
as, as it's coming into a environment like advertising data. I've seen people using Cassandra with a variety of different other databases. I don't know that there's any one particular one that's best or most effective. Another place you see Cassandra used heavily, though you need to be careful here, Cassandra can be configured to work with Spark. You don't want your operational data in Cassandra being processed by Spark. When you do that, that's bad. So generally what ends up happening is you define a multi-data center arrangement and you'll have a separate data center even if it's not physically separate. But what Cassandra thinks of as a separate data center for your Spark connector and Spark talks to that set of the data. Okay. So we've talked about natural great fits and the attributes of the database. Is it safe to say that Cassandra should be ruled out in any case that a conventional RDBMS would do a good job for that use case? Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. I have to ask just because I know you have so many good field stories, you know, obviously changing the names of the innocent, but uh, what is the worst implemented use case that, that you've seen come across? I was working with a customer last year. Their corporate had told them, you're getting off of Oracle and you are moving to Cassandra, period. And they came to me and said, here is one of our, our, our databases. It was a basically a identity service providing information about the, the users of this application, their names, their email addresses, their phone numbers, and some information specific to the application. And they brought it to me and said, we need to put this on Cassandra. And I said, no, you don't. <laughs> I said, no, this does not belong on Cassandra. They said, but we're told we have to put it on Cassandra. So how do we do it? We actually did build a prototype using Cassandra, replicating the data over and over and over again, because we needed to be able to access data by phone number, by email address, by last name, and by some other application-specific characteristics. So the database, which had been running on Oracle and was like 10 gigabytes, oh, ended wow. up on Cassandra at uh, almost 200 gigabytes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was really ugly. It was like, okay, fine, how are we going to keep all this stuff in sync? And the answer was, no, we're not. I left before, I, I, before they actually tried to put it in production. I told them they shouldn't. We'll see whether or not they did or not. Hmm. Okay. So let's shift gears into some tips for anyone who may have made it all the way through this interview. If I, if I want to get started and I'm a conventional DBA, you know, it doesn't matter the platform, what, uh, what are some resources that you would recommend to me or things that I should do or try? If you're really interested in learning Cassandra, go to the Datastax Academy and take their classes. They're all free. Uh, the video online classes are. Take them all. They'll help you basically get going. They give you a virtual machine you can download to your, your laptop or desktop and allow you to experiment with it in a, a very easily and controlled environment. They take care of all the setup for you so you don't have to worry about that. It is really, really an easy way to get started. Once you get going a little bit and you want to start experimenting, there is a wonderful tool called the cluster, Cassandra Cluster Control Manager. I got one too many C's in there. I think, I think it's just Cluster Control Manager. But anyways, it is a tool that allows you to deploy a cluster on a single machine. It requires Python and a couple of other things to be installed on your machine, mm -hmm. some very specific packages, but they're outlined in the web page. And it allows you to set up and experiment with running an entire cluster. It allows you to experiment with the replication factor and consistency factors. It's a, a really wonderful tool. Okay. Sounds good. Well, I think we covered enough of the database to get everyone you know, kind of started and, and educated on the basics. So at this point, I'm going to move into what I call the lightning round. And this is where I ask you a couple of questions and get you to, so, so the audience can get to know you and we can get to know you just a little bit better. Please try and say the first, kind of the first thing that comes to mind. So what project are you most uh, proud of? On Cassandra? Any, it doesn't matter, any platform. You know, I'm... I'm caught flat-footed on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you have had a long uh, career, so it's got to be hard to keep it. Oh, of my entire career? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
the Angelia project at, at, at AOL where we basically we architected the entire mail system from running on proprietary tandem computers to be running on an open source environment. I was deeply involved in that and it was probably the, in many ways the pinnacle of my career. Okay. Certainly wide-reaching, too. Let's see. Let's talk about what... Can you recommend a book that's made a significant impact on your career? Yeah, but it's probably not going to be one that you would think. Well, those are the um, best ones. <laughs> now, I'm trying to remember the name, the, the, the title. It, I think it's referred... It's called Advanced Programming in Linux, or Unix. I'm sorry, Advanced Programming in Unix by William Stevens. Or advanced programming Linux, or advanced Unix programming. That's a, it's it, it's a really excellent guide in how to program in in the Unix world, and Linux world, and it's still very much appropriate today, even as it, as appropriate as it was back in the, the the dark ages of the 1990s. Okay. Are you do you use a standing or a sitting desk? I'm an old guy. I sit. <laughs> I don't. I I said too, and and I actually do a combination. What about laptop or desktop? Both. Okay. Mac or PC? Mostly PC and a little bit of Linux. Uh, let me describe to you what I have sitting in front of me right now. I have a uh, a Dell server that the family uses and I use as well to do all the family stuff. I have a Dell server that I use for my. Uh, crash and burn testing. It runs Linux mostly with lots of virtual machines on it. I have another Dell which I use for experimenting with various Windows things. Then I've got my laptop which I take with me wherever I go and I also have a, a Raspberry Pi stack sitting here that I play around with once in a while. It's currently running a Cassandra cluster. <laughs> okay, fair, fair enough. Are you an iPhone or an Android person? I am an iPhone person. I have to. I, I'm somewhat surprised. I I would have guessed you as an Android guy. <laughs> it's it's historical. When I was working for AOL, they gave me an iPad uh, and said, "Use our products. We should be using our own dog food." And since they gave it to me to play with, I learned on it and got used to it. And when I decided to buy a smartphone, it was like, you know, if I buy a iPhone, it will actually do everything that the iPad did, pretty much. And I won't have to learn anything new. And while I enjoy learning new things, I don't enjoy learning new things just because uh, you know it's there to learn. If it's nothing more than learning a new interface, that's a bore. So it's like, okay, fine, I'm going to use the iPhone. Okay, fair enough. What is the best tool or app that you use on a daily basis? The best tool or app? Excel. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. And lastly, if people want to connect with you or read some of your writing or, or whatnot, where where's the best place for them to find you? I'm not that visible. I'll be the first to admit. I occasionally publish blogs on the Pythian website. I am visible in LinkedIn, and that's pretty much it. Okay. I have a tw I have a Twitter feed, but I never feed it. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us uh, today, John. I really appreciated you taking the time. That's all we have time for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is writing a review on iTunes and telling a friend where to find us. What would you like to meet, hear more of? Is there some part of what John covered that you'd like to go deeper into? You can send us feedback and emails at datascapepodcast at gmail.com or tweet to me at d at DBA Chris on Twitter to get in touch. Until next time, take care and have a great day. Navigating the Datascape.